Well, good morning again and welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen and I'm one of the pastors here and we are glad that you are with us today. If this is your first time back in a while, we're so glad that you're here. And if you call this place home, welcome back. It's so good to have you with us. Now, we are wrapping up a sermon series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Troubled Hearts. And the reason that we've been talking about this is kind of there's this idea that exists in Scripture that I think we have forgotten in our own lives, but Jesus kind of teaches us to guard our hearts. It's this understanding that our hearts are the source of our life. They're not just these things that move blood through us, but they're kind of the emotional intelligence of our whole being. And we have to pay attention to what's in our hearts because what's in our hearts manifests and comes out into our lives. And I think one of the kind of the temptations or one of the things that feels easy in Christianity is to think about your faith is just trying to manage your own behavior in relationship to God. It's kind of this vertical relationship. And I think that opportunities like what we just experienced with prayers of the people remind us that this is something far bigger than just our own personal relationship with God, that the way that we live our lives impacts the people around us. The choices that we make, the beliefs that we hold, the emotions that lurk within our hearts, they eventually spill out. And depending on our sphere of influence and our platform, the way that those things that are in our heart, the way that they spill out into the world makes a difference. And so... Prayers of the people gives us an opportunity to communally, to collectively pray for the people who are in need in Ukraine. But it's not just something that we do one time here on Sunday morning that we're going to go about our lives. My hope would be that all throughout the weeks that follow, for as, as long as this conflict lasts, that you would take time to stop and to, to pray and to remember that there are people in the world whose life situation looks very different than our own. And the biggest reason for that is mostly by virtue of where we were born. So let us not just think about all of this in the context of our own personal relationship with God, but let us remember that God has created all of us as a human species, as a people, as a collective, and lives are no more valuable depending on where you're born than somewhere else. So as you transition from that, evil can evil couldn't even make that jump. But as we kind of transition from that to kind of talk about what we're going to talk about this morning, let me remind you what we have talked about the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these emotions that lurk within our hearts. The reasons that we are looking at them, like I said before, is because they bubble up and spill out into our lives. And so there are some particular emotions that wreck more havoc in our lives than other emotions. Wow, the first week we talked about anger. And the way that anger has this sense of that you are owed something, that you've been wronged by somebody else, and that kind of you're seeking payment for that wrong. Last week, Allie talked about guilt and the way that guilt is kind of this burden that you carry, this feeling that you owe other people. And today, we're going to wrap up the series by talking about two emotions that are similar and related. They're kind of like cousins, but they're a little bit different. So I'm going to try to go a little fast to make sure that we have enough time for both of them, but they're the emotions of jealousy and greed. Now, as I was kind of preparing some of the work around the sermon this morning, I was like, well, good, I'm glad that I get to preach about something that I don't struggle with. It's been nice because I've kind of felt conflicted and convicted as I've talked about anger and guilt, but as I've moved into jealousy and greed, I'm like, well, good, I'm off the hook at least for a Sunday. And then in the work that I've done, I realized that I'm far guiltier of these two emotions, then they're more present in my life than I thought they would be. And my hope and prayer for you this morning is you have the same journey and experience that I did, that you first hearing that we're talking about jealousy and greed, you're like, oh good, well I get to take a Sunday off. My hope is that uh, you don't. 
So as we start this first emotion, the first one that we're going to talk about is jealousy. And jealousy is this feeling, this belief, it's an emotion around this idea that I need what they have. Now, particularly, you know, we recognize jealousy as this emotion that has existed through time. We see a lot of evidence for it in Scripture. You know, Cain was jealous of, a- of Abel. Jacob and Esau, there was jealousy there. Joseph and, you know, his coat of many colors, his brothers were jealous of him. And then as it moves off the pages of Scripture, Commodus was jealous of the attention that Maximus got from his father in the movie Gladiator. And in that true story, Buzz uh, felt like, or Woody felt like Buzz replaced him in Toy Story. You know, jealousy is this kind of common emotion that we see all throughout life. And really, it's around this idea that other people, a particular person, a group of people, they have something that you need, that have something that you want. It can, be, it can be around looks. It can be around appearance. It can be around aptitudes and abilities, talents. It can be around opportunities. It can be around resources relationships, et cetera, et cetera. You can really kind of fill in anything into that blank about they have what I need. And what we end up doing with jealousy is we start to villainize the other people because there is a disparity, a disparity. there's an inequality between what you perceive that they have and what you need. There's kind of underneath this emotion, there's this sense of lack. There's this sense of not having what it is that you feel like you need. There's this fear around the way that what they possess in some category is absent in your own life, and you want what they have. Now, this is a kind of a, a tricky emotion because it can manifest in big ways in our lives, and sometimes, you know, there are categories of jealousy that we could probably say are healthy. If um, there's things that you love and value and care about, and they seem to be at risk of being lost, you can recognize how maybe you would have appropriate jealousy. But there's also this category that Scripture talks about more, about kind of this inappropriate category of jealousy. And it uses a couple of words to talk about it. It calls it jealousy. It calls it envy. And it calls it covetousness, especially if you're reading out of the King James Version. There's a lot of covetousness in the King James Version, especially as you read through the Ten Commandments. And really, those emotions are surrounding this idea. It's a desire for what other people have. It's a desire to acquire what you feel like you lack that's in possession of the people in your life. And, and the challenge with jealousy, I think, is similar to the challenge with anger because we create stories that justify why we should have what they have. We create a story about why it's, it's appropriate, it's reasonable, it's okay for us to want what the other person has. And in particular, why we don't want them to have what they have. It's kind of like a both and. We want what they have, but we also don't want them to have what they have. But what's tricky about this jealousy is we don't want them to lose what they have necessarily. We just want to have it too. Let me, let me explain. This is kind of where jealousy rears its ugly head in my life. So as a pastor, I kind of view my job and my role uh, to help people in their relationship with God. We talk about helping people take their next steps. I kind of view my role as like the guide to help people take their next steps in their faith journey. And an indicator that I'm doing my job well is that I help more and more t- people take more and more next steps. So you can see how, as a pastor, if you were to look at the other churches, 
and evaluate how many people are taking next steps in their churches, there's this opportunity for jealousy. When I look at these other churches, I'm like, oh my gosh, they have so many more people than we have here. Wouldn't that be great if we had all of those people taking next steps here, if we had all of those people here? It's not that I want other churches to have less people. I just want this church to have more people. Now, what's interesting about jealousy is that you can begin to create a rationale and a reasoning that justifies that. Well, yeah, we want to you know, help people in their relationships with God. We want more people to have relationships with God. That's a good thing, and it is a good thing. Until it starts to move kind of towards that toxic end of the sphere where my whole identity, my whole value system, my whole motivation in life is around acquiring that thing at the expense of everything else or through inappropriate means to acquire that which I desire. And this is a real temptation for me. Not because I'm like trying to like think of like devious ways to recruit more people to the church or steal them from other churches, but it's easy to live and die on Sunday morning attendance. That's, been, that's a really strong temptation to be like, how was church? Oh, it was bad. Why? Well, not that many people came. Or how, how's things going at the Grove? Wow, it's great. It's great. Why? Oh, a lot of people are coming. When it becomes, an identity becomes so thin based on one particular desire to have what other people have, you're at risk for jealousy. Because if I'm in that place where my identity is tied into our church attendance, then everywhere else that has more attendance than us is like a better place to be. I'd want to be there. I'd want to lead there. I'd want to serve there. I start to become jealous of the other pastors who have those opportunities to lead and guide and teach and speak to more people. This is kind of the way that I wrestle with it. And so one of the workings is like, how do you understand the temptations that exist in jealousy? How do you recognize the pitfalls? Because there's nothing wrong with like wanting more people to be here. But when my identity or my ability to be in relationship with other pastors because they have more people than me, when that starts to erode and deteriorate, now I'm at risk. And this is what happens in our own lives, right? Like there's somebody that has something that you want. They got a promotion that you didn't. They got an opportunity that you didn't. They have a relationship that you don't. They have more resources that doesn't feel like they've earned appropriately. Whatever the situation may be, you start to create this story that it's not fair that they have what they have that you don't have. And so you start to want what they have. And what we see happens is it begins to create this conflict within us that then spills out into our relationships. And ultimately, at the core of jealousy, it erodes our ability to love people well. It erodes our ability to be in relationship with people. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, kind of writes about this kind of issue with jealousy and the way that it becomes an obstacle between us and other people. This is what he says kind of in the fourth chapter of his letter after Jesus' life, trying to give some extra instruction to churches about how they should live in relationship to one another and how they should live in the example of Jesus. James writes these words. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? Now, what James is saying is just a reiteration of what we've been saying throughout this series. What happens in your heart spills out into your life. In particular, for James, he's saying what's going on in the relationship conflict and the relationship stress that you have around you is that you have desires that are raging war within you that spill out into your own relationships. There's something that you want that's causing conflict within you that impacts the people around you. 
Now, a really kind of easy example of this is kind of what I see happen, and I've seen happen over all of my years of ministry, is when you get coffee and you don't put a lid on it and you try to navigate church with an open cup of hot coffee, inevitably what happens is somebody bumps you, and what happens when they bump you is you end up spilling the coffee. And so over 15 years of ministry, my eyes have been trained to identify lidless cups all around the sanctuary to make sure that what is in the container, once you get bumped up into, doesn't spill out onto yourself or other people. James is saying the same thing happens with your own desires. And he goes on. He says, you desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet. You're jealous of. You desire what somebody else has. You feel like you need what they have, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. Behind any tinge of jealousy, behind any sense of unfairness in the world about what other people have that you don't have, is this kind of question and wrestling and belief that there's something that you want that you're not getting. This is one of the things that that I often kind of use to help people navigate strong emotions that they're feeling when they come in for any type of pastoral counseling. They talk about Stephen, blah, 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 and they go through this whole scenario. And most of the time, the way that I kind of draw them back in is I say, okay, what do you want? There's some frustration, there's some emotion, there's some anxiety, fear, worry, stress, discontent, because you want something and you're not getting it. James is saying this is at the heart of all of our jealousy and of all of kind of the relational conflict. You can just kind of tie a big bow around all of it. Any fight that you have in your relationship, in your marriage, in your kind of professional life, in your friendships, what you can do to clarify what's going on in this moment is to ask, what do I want that I'm not getting? Parents, here's a perfect parenting tip from a person who doesn't have any children. You can use this in the middle of sibling like discontent and sibling fighting or just in the middle of an emotional outburst. Okay, what is it that you want that you're not getting? It helps us become present with this thing that we feel like we need that we don't have that somebody else has. It might be attention. It might be affection. It might be time. It might be resources or opportunities. It might be a compliment. It might be acknowledgement. You can fill in the blank because there are lots of things that we desire that other people have that we feel like we need. And the problem is when we don't get what we feel like we need that other people have, we start into this process of kind of letting the jealousy flare up in our lives. And so James continues on. He says, listen, the source of all of this is because you're not getting what you want. And then he says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God. And this is what I think is so important about jealousy is we often view it through the lens of other people have what we want. And we think that the solution is them not having it and us having it. But that's actually not true. Because we don't care whether they have it or not as long as we have it, right? Like, again, back to my own example. If the church continues to grow and we continue to add more and more people, I don't care what other churches have as long as we continue to get more. Like, if that's my desire, it's not that I need other churches to have less people there. It's I just want us to have more people. And again, you can like justify it in a sense, but when you apply this into other categories, it's like, well, I don't, I don't need her to be skinnier. I just would like to look different. 
or I don't need the same opportunity that she has. I just want my own opportunity. It, it becomes less of like we need to take from other people and distribute the things differently and more about us getting present with the fact that we just don't have what we want and we need to redirect where we're going to get it. And James does this for us. He says, listen, you don't have what you want because you're not asking and you're not searching for it in the right place. He says, go to God. Take all of these things that you feel like you need and want that you don't have, that you wish you had, that other people have, that is provoking this jealousy. And he says, bring them to God. And then he caveats it. And this is going to be a little bit of a disappointment because you felt like you just heard the answer to how you solve the jealousy in your life. Just ask God and you get what you want. But that's not the case. Because James clarifies and he says, and when you ask, you don't receive. Because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures or on your desires or on the things that you crave. Does not mean that whatever you ask for, God's going to give you. Because often, what we think that we want and need is motivated by this sense of lack, by this fear of what we don't have. And so we think that if we look like them or live there or work there or have a church with this many people, we'll have what we actually need because it's usually not the thing that we think we need that we feel like is missing. We just mislabel it. There's actually probably something deeper there. And that we can find in God. That's this first aspect. And I haven't really given you the remedy yet, but we'll do that at the end. So just to recap, jealousy is this idea that I need what they have. Now, its cousin is greed. While jealousy says I need what they have, greed is the feeling that I need more than I have. It's not so much about we need to take it from other people to acquire it to ourselves. It's this sense that whatever we have isn't enough. Now, the first three emotions are fairly easy to identify in our own life. It may take a minute, but as you sit with it or as you sat through the sermons, you likely have like, oh, dang, that's more true in my life than I want it to be. Greed is the one that most of us would be like, no, not me. In fact, in all 15 years of my time as a pastor, I've never met a self-identified greedy person. Nobody in my life has been like, you know what? I'm greedy. Nobody's ever identified as such. And I think one of the reasons is with greed, we, we disguise it as a virtue. We're good stewards. We're thrifty. We're resource conscious. We are playing it safe. We, we have all of these words around this hidden desire for greed. Now let me caveat. All of those virtues that I've just kind of talked through, all of those ways that we identify having healthy spending habits are all good. They just can also be a cover and a camouflage for greed. So I thought, why not just make everybody here uncomfortable this morning and let me just read you some statements about greedy people that might help you at least identify the person next to you. So here we go. You ready? You might need to take a bathroom break. This would be the opportunity. Greedy people talk a lot and worry a lot about money. This may be you. Greedy people are not cheerful givers. Greedy people are reluctant to share. Greedy people are poor losers. 
Greedy people quibble over insignificant sums of money. Greedy people talk as if they only have enough to get by. Greedy people won't let you forget what they've done for you. Greedy people are reluctant to express gratitude. Greedy people are rarely content with what they have. And greedy people attempt to control people with their money. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? As I was writing those, I was like, ugh. Sometimes scripture functions as a window in which to see the world. And sometimes scripture functions as a mirror in which you can better see yourself. And I think with this, at least for me, it's like, ooh, there's probably more of this here than I want. My guess is that might be true for you. And greed, just like all of the other emotions, when left uncontrolled, can wreak havoc in our lives and in our relationships. Which is why, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a whole series of teachings about the dangers of greed. This is what he says. He has his disciples around him, and people are asking him different questions, and he kind of teaches on a variety of topics, and then somebody asks him about money. And, and then his tone and his language change, and it becomes a little bit more urgent and serious. And he said, watch out, like danger, caution. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And this idea of being on your guard against all kinds of greed is like an active, continual like vigilance. Not like, hey, listen to that sermon on greed and then you're good. Or write that check that one time and then you're off the hook. It's, this is something that's always at work in your life. This is something that's always at work in your heart. Because ultimately, this is what we see with all of these emotions. They're not behavior issues. They're heart issues. Because greed is this continual fear that you don't have enough. Greed is this continual feeling and desire that you need more to be okay. As we kind of navigate greed, what we find is that there's always another what if to justify why you need to act the way that you are that might be letting greed take control of your life. Saving more, trying to earn more, having more attention and focus on the resources that exist or don't exist. It's this scarcity mentality that's always and often justified by a very reasonable, by a very sensible, what if? Well, what if this happens? You're right. That is a valid concern and why we might need more resources. Well, what about this? Yep, that also is true. The problem, as we'll see, is there's always going to be another what if. There's always going to be a justification for more. This is why Jesus teaches us you have to be on guard because it is this always lurking right around the corner. It's one of these interesting appetites that, just like anything else in our life, the more that you feed it, the larger it grows. Kind of like with gluttony. Like people who struggle with gluttony think about food just as much as people who are starving. The more that you feed it, the more that you satiate it, the more that it becomes unsatiated and needs more and more and more. This is what happens with greed. There's never an end. It's kind of like those hamster wheels that just keep spinning. And you run and you run and you run and there's never a place that there's no destination. As soon as you get to where you think you need, you come up with another what if or another scenario and the goalposts move. So then 
Jesus continues to explain this idea and this teaching on greed. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then he says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, we can insert any type of kind of material resource there. It can be an investment portfolio. It can be a savings account. It can be in a retirement account. It could be in physical assets. It could be in literal stuff that you, that you put in your home or that you don't have enough space for in your home, and so you buy other spaces to put those things. It can be anything, but it's about this acquiring of more. And he says life does not consist in an abundance of this stuff. And this is the myth and the lie that exists within greed. It's this lie that once you have enough, then you'll be okay. Once you reach a certain place that is undefined, and you'll, you're never able to arrive to, but once you get there, then your life is secured. Then you can relax. Then there will be no more what-ifs. But what we see is that's just never true. There's always another what-if when you allow greed to lurk in your heart. And so then Jesus, to help clarify this teaching, tells a story, just like he often does. And this is the story that he tells them. And he tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, in an agrarian society, what would have immediately been clear in this story is that there was some small part of effort and work that this man put in to the abundant harvest that was yielded. This would have been a harvest that was larger than what he planned for, an unexpected amount. He has more than he thought he would ever have. And there had been some sense that there was an amount of effort, resourcefulness, knowledge, skill, aptitude that the farmer applied to creating the, the result of this harvest. But far more, exceedingly more, would have been outside of his control. The weather, the crops, the land, all of those were variables that he largely had no control over. And so the understanding implied in this story is that there is far more that we receive, that we own, that we possess, that is not the result of all of our hard work and intelligence like we think it is. We have this direct input-output as it relates to our stuff. And what's implied in this story is it's actually just, you're fortunate. It comes from somewhere else. And so if you're not the ones who created it, you're not the ones who own it. And you're just the ones who have been entrusted to manage it. And like any good manager, without this owner's mentality, you ask responsible questions around how you should steward this. Just like if you took an amount of money and gave it to an investment planner and you said, hey, will you, here, I'm just going to send you this check of this amount of money. They wouldn't go to the store with it. They don't own it. It's not their resources. They think about how they can wisely steward the resources that they've been given. All of this context was, is, a, is applied and applicable in this story. There's a temporary stewardship that exists that this man fails to recognize. Look at the language. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. If you deserve it because you've earned it, then the logical outcome is that you're going to store it because it's yours. See, this is the question that we rarely ask ourselves when it comes to our resources. What should I do with this? Why have I been given so much? 
Why do I likely have more than I need but less than I want? Why? How should I manage this? How should I spend this? We just assume that because it's ours that we've worked for and earned, we should get to spend it how we want. We fail to recognize the temporary stewardship that exists in the resources that we, that we possess. And Jesus says this shift in perspective unlocks all of this related to greed. And so he goes on. This is what happens to the man who fails to recognize his temporary stewardship of these resources. He thinks that because he has this stuff and he owns this stuff, that it will secure his life. And so then the man says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store my surplus grain. Since I have more, I'll just store more and save more and keep more. It's mine anyway. I've, I've earned it. I deserve it. And this is what happens when he makes that choice. He comes to the conclusion that it's his to be able to spend. Good. Early retirement. I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Implication. More stuff equals more life. More stuff equals more life. And then Jesus shows us the fallacy in all of this. But God said to him, you fool. You're ignorant. You've missed the point of all of this. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then he asks a very important question that points out the irony and the fallacy and this type of thinking that it's ours to own. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, the belief in always needing to acquire more is that it's ours. But everything that you currently own and everything that you will ever own will one day be owned by somebody else. It will one day be someone else's in some way, shape, or form. None of it's going with us at the end of our life. And so if the purpose of our life, if the focus of our life, if the efforts of our life is to continually acquire more and more and more, then at the end of it, we've lived a foolish life because none of it's going to end up being ours. And then Jesus kind of wraps it all up in this very cheerful sermon. This is how it will be whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. It's this idea that you've made the goal of your life about acquiring more that you can't keep, that you can't take, that eventually someone else is going to have. And you've missed all of the opportunity in your life to ask a different kind of question around your resources. Not, ooh, how should I spend this? But why have I been entrusted with this? Why do I have more than I need? What should I do with this? How could I be rich towards God? And that idea, rich towards God, is just this kind of implied generosity to both God and to others, which is actually, I think, the remedy for both jealousy and greed. And here's what I mean. Remember back to jealousy, it's this desire that you need what other people have. Well, the remedy to that, the remedy for jealousy, is a generosity celebrating what others have. It inverts the dynamic. If you're constantly looking at what other people have and desiring it, wanting to have it for yourself, then the way that you work out of this place of jealousy is to begin to celebrate anytime somebody has something that you want or that you need. Apply it to myself in the example I've already given. 
The best thing that I can do to protect my heart and to guard my heart from jealousy is to celebrate any time another church is successful, to celebrate any time another pastor preaches a great sermon that people begin to talk about, is to celebrate, to celebrate, to celebrate. Because jealousy, there's this kind of this secrecy to it. If I sit back and I allow it to be like, ah, oh, I wish we had, I should have had, I didn't have, if they only could, blah, blah, blah. what ends up happening is, is jealousy begins to turn towards bitterness and resentment. And if I'm resentful towards people or a person, I can't love them well. And so how do you lean into that desire to have what they have and to say, I'm, I'm so happy for you? Congratulations on the promotion. I'm so thankful that you have this opportunity. I'm so thankful that you have these resources. I'm so thankful that God has given you such an incredible figure, whatever it may be. There's a bit of fake it till you make it. I'm not asking you to lie or be totally insincere, but here's what I know about jealousy is if you wait to feel generous, you'll never be generous. The same is gonna be true with greed. If you wait to feel like, yeah, okay, I'm finally at a place where I have enough, or I finally am happy for them, if you wait for that feeling to prompt the action, it'll never come. So the remedy, the antidote to the jealousy that lurks in our hearts is to lean into celebrating what other people have. And then in a similar way, the remedy to greed is generosity and giving what you have. It's letting go. Because letting go means acknowledging that you may not have the ability to get more and that you are trusting that more will come not by your own efforts, but that what you have is enough. And so as we kind of wrap up this series, I think the thing that I hope that you would leave with is beginning to be vigilant, beginning to guard your heart across these emotions of anger and guilt and jealousy and greed, acknowledging that they are constantly lurking. They are at work within us. In certain capacities, they're helpful in guiding and informing our lives and our kind of emotional intelligence. But left unchecked and left unregulated, they can wreak total havoc in our lives. And as it relates to jealousy and greed, how do we lean into generosity in a different way? How do we ask different questions around what we want and around what we have so that we can become generous? Because that's the whole dynamic is we're temporary stewards of all of these incredible things. And if we could leverage them appropriately, if we could offer them responsibly, if we could be rich towards God and others, we could create a totally different world. And it's a world we desperately need right now. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to be reminded of the ways that you are at work in our life and to be reminded of the ways that you were at work in the world. God, guard our hearts against jealousy and greed and help us to lean in to a generous spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.